Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by Grace. Welcome to Grace Archie with Jim Babka. I'm so excited for today. I, this is uh, one of those rare opportunities where we get to talk to someone who is like someone about their human side. Yes. And I'm not going to give it away, but why don't you do the intro and then we'll bring this amazing person on and, and we can begin. So I met this amazing person in 2020 face to face for the first time. And the thing that's extraordinary about that is we should have met all the way back in 1996 at the, at, I mean, really should have met at that time. So uh, Joe Jorgensen is joining us today and she was running as vice president in 1996 on the libertarian ticket with Harry Brown. And I like to say that Harry Brown changed my life. I joined the, the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian Movement in 1996. Uh, didn't stay with the party so much, uh, continue to like support its candidates and stuff. But I stayed in the movement from that point forward. It became kind of my life. And uh, we had all the same friends and acquaintances, like the people that brought me on to the party and helped me learn the, the ropes were the very same people that were working in one case directly inside her campaign to, as vice president. And uh, so the fact that we had so many friends in common, it was amazing that it took all the way till 2020 for us to meet. Uh, she is the 1996 vice presidential nominee, the 2020 nominee for president of the United States, did a great job uh, running against uh, uh, two other old guys. I, you know, whatever. And, and uh, she's also the chairman of the board for People for Liberty, Home for Liberty, uh, those organizations. And full disclosure, I serve alongside her there. Uh, so Joe Jorgensen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. And there's absolutely no way I can live up to that introduction. If, if they had only been so kind to me <laughs> during the uh, campaign, maybe it would have been a little easier. <laughs> so so why does someone run for uh for president, because it seems like that, you know, there's a situation will put you in for a, for a lot of punishment. I quote Michael Cloud and I say for self-defense, you know, I had so many reporters ask me, oh, well, you know, running for president, that's pretty high. So when did you first become interested in politics? You know, did, did you run for a student council? Were you, you know, president of the, you know, high school class, whatever it's called. And I said, no, in fact, I hated that. You know, I had read Animal Farm uh, in fifth grade. And when I get to high school, it's like, well, that's not fair. How come there's some student body president and student council that gets to make all the decisions? That's not right. So, no, I've been against government from the very start. And, you know, but a a after seeing all the shenanigans that they do, it's like, you got to do something. Very good. So let's go back in time. Let's go back to the beginning and find out a little bit about how you got involved in all of this in the first place. You, uh, what is kind of, I guess, your pathway to libertarianism? I would, for example, do you consider yourself having been a libertarian all along? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the first presidential candidate I ever voted for in 1980, which was the year I graduated from college, well, one year master's, uh, was Ed Clark. So I've never voted for a Democrat or Republican, um, at least for president. Uh, usually when I go vote, I'll just vote straight libertarian ticket, even if there's only three people out of 20 races. Um, you know, maybe if I want to throw in some shenanigans, I'll do that because we've got open primaries in uh, South Carolina. But yeah, uh, as far as my path goes, as I mentioned, I read Animal Farm in grade school and it just really opened up my eyes. And then when I got to college, a typical, you know, I'm, I followed the typical boring path of I read Ayn Rand. And, you know, when I when I read Atlas Shrugged back in the 70s, it was like, oh, well, this is crazy. There's never going to be homeless people on the sidewalk. She's a bit extreme, but I think she's got some good ideas. Um, and, and what was so amazing about her writing is she put it in terms I had never thought of. Like, you know, we've all thought about people passing laws so that their company is favored. I forgot that you were in Ohio. Uh, I remember reading James Bovard, some, I'm probably quoting the wrong author, back in the 90s, that there was a law passed in Congress, U.S. Congress, not Ohio, U.S. Congress, in which the law only affected one company in the entire United States. And it was in Ohio, you know, somebody who paid enough money. And it's frustrating hearing especially people on the left say that, you know, well, big greedy capitalists. And it's like, how do you think that these corporations got so big? You've got big greedy capitalists who are using government. If if we didn't have big government, then they would actually have to earn our business. They would have mm -hmm. to please us instead of pleasing the uh, the lawmakers. So how did you find the Libertarian Party then? Oh, I was, well, it's actually kind of a funny story. And this is one that I didn't really go into on the campaign trail too much uh, or ever. Um, I was, I just moved to Dallas for, uh, I, I went, I got my undergrad degree, uh, a BS at, at Baylor. And then I went and got my MBA at SMU in Dallas. And I never listened to talk radio back then. It, it wasn't really a big thing back then. But somehow moving boxes, I ended up listening to talk radio. And it was Honey Lanham on the local show, okay. not the Retirement Party. And I was like, oh, my gosh, somebody else believes what I believe in. Because I had just figured, OK, I'm just going to go my entire life and not vote because this is just silly. And I, I got to go meet these people. But what's funny is... You know, in the liberty, and we're all sitting here talking casual, right? You know, around around the campfire, it, there's a joke about libertarians, many of them being povertarians. You know, the people who are in the movement, who've traditionally been in the movement, have been in the movement because they were passionate, not because they want special favors, not because there's some big industrialist who's trying to. Um, you know, bribe officials, but people who are just really passionate and they're willing to spend their last few dollars, you know, to be able to go to, to a convention. Well, keep in mind, I heard about it in Dallas, right? So it's like my, my husband and I were like, okay, we got to go, we got to go check this place out. Mm -hmm. 
And it was in this mansion in Dallas and it was like in the backyard and all these people in their fancy clothes. And we're looking around and our thought was, you know, I don't think we're rich enough to join the Libertarian Party. It's probably, <laughs> probably the only local Libertarian Party in the entire United States that had any money. So, and, and since we were both students at the time, we were like, well, we're not rich enough. So I, I actually didn't join the party in 79, but I joined the movement. You know, I helped candidates and I, you know, I, I didn't technically join the party till you know, whatever, 10 years later, eight year, whenever it was in the 80s. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny that that's uh, where I ended up. Running for vice president then wasn't the first time you'd run for office either, right? You did run before? Right. I ran in 92 for the U.S. House. And I had a lot of fun doing it. I, I learned, you know, I made a lot of mistakes, learned along the way. But the one thing I had the most fun doing is Bob Inglis was running. I don't know if you've heard of him. You are getting exclusive stories from me, things I've never told. Bob Inglis's slogan was reclaim Congress. And, you know, the I, I don't I don't even know if I had heard of his slogan yet. But anyway, so I go to the first event and I'm a speaker too. You know, the South Carolina really has been good for all candidates. I was on the debate, you know, the NBC oh, okay. local debate, and pretty much everywhere I went, they let me share the stage too. So, and usually I would be the last one. So Bob Inglis would get up there and say, I want to reclaim Congress. And so I would get up there and think, oh, this is too easy. I want to reclaim America from Congress and then talk about yes. how, you know, we got to get all those people in. Now, you know, since we're kind of humanizing it here, as you can imagine, I was so busy on the campaign trail. The housework didn't always get done. And my husband one day quipped, um, maybe we can call Bob Inglis and see if he can reclaim this house. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, takes a lot of time to run on the campaign trail, especially when you've got two little kids. And uh, then you run for vice president. So that's that's the yeah. one campaign. And then, so why? So the Libertarian Party, for people who are not familiar, who might be listening, the Libertarian ca candidates for president and vice president are nominated separately. And uh, at the time, it wasn't the custom. I, I know this changed here a little bit recently. There's some candidates did speak up at the last convention as to who they wanted, but most of the time there wasn't ticket running. There was, you know, you ran kind of independent. So you ran your campaign to be vice president. Right. Why did you get into that race? What motivated you to do that? Cause that's a, that's an, uh, an even bigger undertaking potentially. Yeah. Um, and I, I've been told that I was the first one to ever do that. So I'm not sure if I am, uh, you know, okay. but okay. Uh, but, but it was a full scale campaign. Uh, so some people called me who had seen my um, local campaign. Uh, Nancy Lord, who was the VP candidate in 92, had come to Greenville, where I live and was living back then. And she, you know, we had some great events set up, which I will give credit to my campaign manager, David Morris, and not take the credit. But we were actually, we were on the stage and they actually lifted us off the stage and, you know, we're on our backs being crowd surfed in, in, a, in an, a venue in which we 
I think broke every fire law, you know, in the state for how many people were there. <laughs> and they said, you know, you, you well, no victim, no crime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and they, they, and some people called me up and said, and you know, like Nancy Lord, like people had been watching and they said, you know, you did a really good job. Would you consider running for VP? And Is crowd surfing one of the requirements. I mean, what were they? I don't, what were they judging? Uh, I think they were judging the answers that I gave and my debate performance, which looking back now, I cringe, but you know, at the time we were still in the infancy, but no, I think it was my passion and the fact that I was, um, kind of bringing, uh, more of a human, more of a mainstream idea without, sacrificing our principles and that's the thing because we've had people in the party who come who come in and yeah they're they're trying to appeal to the mainstream so much so that they talk about outlawing guns and marijuana but i go in and talk to mainstream people and explain how these ideas work for them without saying we're going to outlaw guns and outlaw marijuana. And by the way, we're not going to outlaw heroin either. <laughs> but but let me right. explain why it helps you, Mr. Mainstream, Mr. And Mrs. Mainstream America. Your uh, my first exposure to you was watching you give your speech at the convention because I was this was my 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 road to Damascus weekend. Really was watching that convention on C-SPAN. I had told my friends that. I wasn't going to be able to vote for the Republican nominee in late June. Uh, that was Bob Dole. And I said, I, I just can't do it. Uh, I felt like the contract with America was being sold out. Like it, it was proof to me they didn't mean it. Yeah. And, I, and then I saw, you know, the Libertarian Convention on TV and I got to watch your speech and it was very well done. Uh, it was the type now of that speech. Wasn't, that, that wasn't the one nine hundred phone sex one, was it? I think that was just my campaign speech. Harry did not like that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He did not like my stump speech. <laughs> no, no, I, I I remember that too. Now that you mention it, they, the the politicians get you all hot and bothered, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> That's but much they never than I had. <laughs> but they I never come cool. over, right? Wasn't right. wasn't it something like that? <laughs> yes. Did. Yeah, I should I should have used hot and bothered. That's even better than what I used. <laughs> um, but but you the, the stuff that you said was you know people can get a feel for it right there. It was designed to stick in the head, like you. You heard it and you were like, oh, and it was memorable. And you kind of got the point uh, in the way that you communicated. And, and then you bring that same energy to the 2020 campaign. You you uh, you were prepared. You knew how to go out and do these short soundbite um, um, interviews. Uh, you know, today we've got a more open form. Right. Uh, but, you know, in those situations, you got to be able to hit those marks pretty quickly and, and represent things pretty well. Uh, how did you learn how to do that? Yeah, again, we're talking Harry Brown's people. You know, Michael basically gave me an assignment beforehand to read. Michael Cloud. Yes, to read an hour a day. And, you know, it, it, libertarian books. I mean, I still got my. Remember how I, I, I quoted that thing about the Ohio and mm -hmm. the law written for yeah, that? Yeah. That one company. It. I just did so much reading like that. And then, in fact, one time, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's just timing. Uh, I remember I had just read, and maybe it was in the plane ride, plane ride on the way there. Uh, but it was like within the previous few days, I go to Pennsylvania 
I think it might have been Bucks County. I'm not sure. And you know, I'm, I'm campaigning still for the VP slot. So I'm in front of uh, libertarians. And somebody asked me a question about the Bureau of Land Management, and I could actually answer it <laughs> because coincidentally, I just read a book on it. <laughs> like I said, I think within the few days before, and they're like, wow, she knows about. <laughs> but and, and by the way, the funny thing is in 2020, I see on the crawl of a new show, I see it says BLM. And my first thought was, really, they're talking about Bureau of Land Management now in 2020? Well, well, I'm prepared. And then I find out later, no, that stands for Black Lives Matter. So um, <laughs> long, long decade. Long yes. decade. Uh, but, and, know, and, how, but, by the way, that brings up an interesting question. How different was it running in 1996 and 2000? I have my own thoughts on this, but I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, 1996 and 2020. Yeah. I have my own thoughts on this, but like. The, it was a different country and a different set of problems and times. What what did you see as the differences? Well, I, I mean, there's differences in the country and kind of talking with people, but then there's logistic differences. Like we really didn't, you know, we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have social media. We didn't have a lot of internet stuff. Although what a lot of people don't know is, Harry Brown and I used the internet a lot more than the other major candidates. And our campaign on a computer was entered into the Smithsonian Institute. And supposedly every time uh, a display goes in there, it never leaves. So supposedly Harry and I are in the, you know, Smithsonian for having used. I, I'm not. I'm not surprised because my experience on the opposite end of all of this as a brand new libertarian was that I knew that I needed to check out that page three to four times a day because mm -hmm. I didn't want to miss any of your your media appearances. And the campaign was pretty good about saying, you know, this just booked and we've got this going. And if I didn't check regularly enough, I might miss an appearance on CNBC or CNN or whatever it was that you guys were doing at the moment, my local yep. radio talk show. So I wanted, I didn't want to miss any of those. If, if, if you folks were on, you were Harry were on. So yeah. I was tuning into all that when you guys were in debates or whatever, I wanted to make sure I was sitting down or at least had recorded those shows. And so yeah. that website, and, you know, was very useful. Yeah. yeah. And also we didn't have podcasts back then. So no. it was a bigger deal to be on the radio. So it, you, you had to be sure to catch those because then it might be a while. Now I, I do remember I was on, up to six times a day, but then some of those, you know, somebody, you know, like out in Wyoming where nobody, you know, beyond mm -hmm. the cows out there can, you know, for a few hundred miles uh, can hear. So it had to be your area. It, it wasn't the streaming coast to coast, you know, there yeah. were a few, few major people, of course, but yeah, but your question about preparing. The other thing I did, and, you know, I, I, I ran for VP because I wanted to be VP. I didn't run for the, I, I it never even occurred to me to run for the presidential nominee nomination. I didn't think I was ready. And I really didn't want to be on the head of the ticket. I really wanted to be VP. That's where I started. Uh, in fact, I joined the race before Harry Brown, but, but I joined the race as VP. And so when, you know, we solidified into one campaign, you know, hey, it's my job to support you. And I remember I gave an answer that Harry Brown did not like. It was on immigration and I was on a Texas radio station. And so 
somebody from the campaign, Michael, called me and we had a three hour conversation that evening. Okay, let's practice. And here's how we want you to answer the question. So which and a lot of people thought, oh, yeah, you're the woman there. You know, the man's in charge. And it's like, well, no, it's not because I'm a woman. It's because I'm the VP candidate. You know, it, it's my job to support him. But probably the funniest thing. Did, did you know about my smuggling the book onto the stage at American University? I don't remember that, no. So I was in a VP debate, um, and Harry had written, you know, his campaign book was basically why government doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So before, you know, and I guess because it was a third-party debate, it was remarkably, you know, lack, lacks in security, and this was before 9-11. And so I was able to make my way on stage with Harry's book and put it in my little lectern there, and then we're like, partway through the debate and I hold out the book and say as Harry Brown said <laughs> and and after I pull it out and show the book the moderator said something like well we're not exactly here to sell books uh and then in a question later on I did it again <laughs> and I had people say <laughs> well you yeah. had to you had to because the moderator had said something right. I mean you know and 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 I had somebody say, I can't believe he took you. Well, he really didn't tell me not to do it, but you know, I had people say, I can't believe he told you not to do it, and you do it again. And it's like, well, that was my job to, you know, that's my job to support Harry. And I thought that was a great book for everyone to read. But again, behind the scenes on this, uh, I we I had actually rehearsed with you know Sharon Ayers and everybody who was on the on the team before you know how like how to introduce the book without it being too mm -hmm. awkward and so the first time i hold it up it's like upside down and i could see they were kind of like trying to hold back the laughter so what they did before the campaign is they um took two covers and cut them up so it didn't matter which way i held it you know front or back it would be it would be okay <laughs> <laughs> like they, they, they taped it together. So both sides had one side the right way. You learn an awful lot when you're doing this. Cause I ended up in his 2000 campaign uh, as his press secretary. Yep. And it, it is, it is an incredible experience. One of the greatest experiences of my life might've been the best job I ever had. Oh uh, yeah. Isn't just, it? Just so it's many so things fun. happen and you have yeah, so many so stories to tell fun. when it's all over. Yeah, I mean, I it, it, you're right. It's a chance in a lifetime, and I've had so many people ask, "Isn't that a lot of work?" And it's like, yeah, the the hardest work, the most work I've ever done in my life. But oh my gosh, it's so rewarding. Yeah, 2000, I was not involved at all. Like, I don't even think I put a sign in my yard. Uh, I was in the middle of my doctoral program, getting my PhD while still running my company full time. So, I, you know. That, that, and that your was company was your company was and your degree your PhD is in. Uh, the company was we duplicated computer software legally. Uh, started out as the three and a half inch floppies and then moved to CDs. And my PhD is in um, industrial organizational psychology. So Which means no. What? I, yeah, it's, yeah. Some people ask me, so what? The company lies on the couch, and you analyze it. But <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've got a PhD in psychology, but no, I cannot diagnose you with schizophrenia. Uh, my my classes included um, teamwork, motivation, leadership, selection. You know, hiring the right people, uh, performance appraisal. You know, 
basically the the psychology side of running a business. So not accounting finance, which I already had with my MBA. Okay. So uh, you're also involved with uh, People for Liberty, Home for Liberty. What uh, What's your role and interest there? Well, I got started because during the campaign, uh, a small group of people started People for Liberty and they had a campaign which was let her speak, trying to mm-hmm. raise awareness to get me into the debates. And they had, you know, like national whatever day where people were driving around in the cars honking. And um, on the road, I was often complimented for that. They were like, wow, you know, we great. You're running a great campaign. The favorite part of my campaign is, you know, this whole let her speak campaign. And it's like, yeah, that ain't us. <laughs> that's That's another group of people. And, and even more so, um, it started out on the 5014C. Did I say that right? Uh, 501C4 I, side, yes. It's a, it's a nonprofit organization. Yes, but it's the four, not the three. And by the way, sometimes mm-hmm. I'm a little dyslexic. Um, but, That's okay. Uh, so I, I mess up, which can I tell you, I, I'm also a, well, I haven't flown in 20 years, but I'm a pilot and they would give you a four code trans you know for transponder mm-hmm. code that you had put in and whenever i would take somebody new up in the plane i'd be like okay listen for the four numbers and put them in because i always mix them up <laughs> and that's I was like, uh, well i really want to fly with you i promise i can fly i just can't put four numbers in the right order yeah. so anyway back to the back to the c4 um this was the legislative side the um the like the PAC side where it's illegal to have any kind of communication, any kind of coordination with the actual campaign. So it's not, it's not like it was a different kind of nonprofit group, which could talk to the campaign. And, and later on they did switch to the three from the four so apparently, and, and, you know, I didn't run the campaign. Steve Dasbach did a great job running it. I was the candidate. And one thing I learned about campaigning is the candidate should be the candidate and not the campaign manager. So I let Steve handle all that. But um, my understanding was they were able to talk with them like later on, but not in the beginning. And so after the campaign, after the election, uh, when I was looking for my next step, how can we keep it going? You know, the, the problem we've had is we'll have a campaign and then nothing for four years, then another presidential campaign and nothing for four years. Now, before social media and before everything that's going on right now, yes, it was hard to keep it going, but now it's a lot easier. So I wanted to keep the momentum going after the campaign. And so, um, yeah, I went to PFL because I thought, wow, if they can do so much, you know, just as a beginning little group without any money at all, you know, think of how much we can do if we grow and really start to, you know, grow the movement and become a larger organization. So, you know, just the fact that people thought that this little group of people um, who put on this campaign was part of our campaign, I think is pretty amazing. It is amazing. So 
what was the goal then of your campaign? What, why did you do like, as just broadly speaking, not personally, but like, what were you trying to accomplish with this? Again, self-defense <laughs> that okay. the, other the other two people, um, you know, sending our, did you have a, did you have a strategy that you were attempting to pursue though? Did you have a, did you think that your campaign could make some kind of difference? You know, how did you hope to make a difference long-term by running? Yeah, well, part of it, of course, you know, I hate to use the word education, um, but part of it is to show people that there is an alternative and to get them out of the right left thinking. You know, um, Marshall Fritz was, or David Nolan, rather, David Nolan and Marshall Fritz, you know, took it and ran with it. Um, such a genius taking it from, you know, what, what one dimension to two? Yeah, I guess it's yes. not quite great. Yes. Taking it from right, left to right, left, up and down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the biggest compliment I can get, and I got this in 92 when I first started running, you know, like my neighbors and friends when, you know, because they'd never been exposed to these ideas before. Um, whenever somebody would say, you know, when I read the newspaper, you know, back, back then we had newspapers, okay? <laughs> um, when I read the newspaper, I, I now read it differently. I, I, you know, I, things look different yeah. to me. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Because people have this idea that you've either got to give up this or this, or, you know, yeah. just. So, so you, you've, uh, you've, these are the things that you're doing and that you're putting your time in. I'm kind of curious what motivates this. Like, I, I understand self-defense, but like, mm -hmm. You're just one person. Like, why, why are these, what are the, why were these activities, the things that you chose to do? But, but we're all just one people, you know, Donald mm -hmm. Trump is just one person. Joe Biden is just one person. Um, Elizabeth Dole was just one person who had a universal drinking age. And, and by the way, I'm not, you know, I, I, even though my PhD is in, in, industrial organizational psychology. Uh, I teach intro to psychology and I've taught cognitive psychology in other classes. So I, I am somewhat well-rounded. Well and you know how people say, well, the brain doesn't stop developing till age 25. Actually, that's women's brains. <laughs> Men's brains don't stop developing until age 28. So I'm not suggesting that 21 is a you know, isn't a reasonable age to start drinking. But I really don't like the idea of basically the Soviet style central planning where people in Washington all over the country can decide what the drinking age is for every state, uh, what you should teach in your schools in every state, or even how you should run your police department. You know, the, the one thing that we had during the campaign was defund the police. And I was repeatedly asked, well, what's your thoughts on defund the police, since that was a major topic? Mm -hmm. And I said, my thought is the president, the, the president should have absolutely nothing to do with that, that we shouldn't have people in Washington telling towns how to run their police departments. That's up to the mayor, city council, county, county council, voters, you know, whoever. But it sure shouldn't be up to the president. So, you know, I it. 
I, and I, I guess part of it is just the, the outrage that I feel, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you look, you know, the answer is self-defense and, and so you didn't tell me we were going to get so deep here because I've usually that's. My oh, yes, answer. I did. Oh, yes, I did. I want to go way past that. Well, back I want to people to find out go... something that they wouldn't have known about you otherwise. I'm I'm interested. So self-defense, oh, I understand but, that. But, but I like how you just said something about outrage. Outrage kind of interests me. There's an emotion there. Right. Yeah. Well, when you said something different, I thought something like people would find out that I don't eat red meat or something like that. Not deep philosophy, you know, philosophy stuff, but I hadn't thought about this before, but, you know, being a psychologist here, let me, which, okay. According to the state of South Carolina, I'm not a licensed psychologist. I do have a PhD in psychology. If I were in my home state, I could call myself a psychologist, but just, you know, disclaimer, not a licensed psychologist here, but as somebody with a PhD in psychology who teaches it at a major university, um, you know, we look at things, is it like a behavior or is it an attitude or, you know, what is it, what kind of thing are we talking about here? So when we talk about self-defense, yeah, that's a behavior. I'm defending myself. But I guess what drives me even more would be not the behavior of self-defense. I guess it would be the emotion, the attitude of outrage that, I am just so outraged. I mean, AOC, who is um, just arrogantly talking about Republicans screaming because somebody's taking away their gas stove. It's like, okay, AOC, how would you like it if somebody took away your curling iron, you know, or that eyeliner that you're always putting on your makeup, you know, on, on these videos. It's like, we've all got our things that we like. And, and why is it up to you to decide what the rest of us should use? And, and it's, it's outrage. So outrage motivates you to action. Yeah, I get, I do get upset. <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> like, like watching a football game, you know, where you throw the socks on the TV, that that's me with, you know, watching um, any of these people on on tv and 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 it's also and and you know also what gets me is and and most people don't like hypocrisy and that's why cognitive dissonance is so big why, why it's such a motivator to drive people to do one thing and not another um but what what really drove me in 96 and things haven't changed is the hypocrisy of the republican politicians so you know i i mentioned in passing my um uh, my theme, my talk was my stump speech. The title was why Republican politicians continue to sell out freedom or keep selling out freedom, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I would make a distinction between the many fine Republican voters who really want smaller government so they can make their own decisions, so they can send their kids to the kind of schools they want to, so they can decide, you know, if we should support a country halfway around the world, or maybe you can better use the money at home versus the Republican politicians who keep promising smaller government, who keep promising Republicans, yes, we're going to let you make your own decisions and then continue to take the decisions away. Now, back then the outrage was over and yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to have flame, th flame throws at my house now was uh, Ronald Reagan. 
you know, it's like, oh, we need the smaller government of Ronald Reagan. He was in office for four years. Every one of those four years, government got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Not four years, eight years, eight years. Government got bigger and bigger every single year for eight years. And I've had some Republicans say, well, but Congress didn't hand them a balanced budget. Okay, well, don't sign it. Tell them no, go back and do it again. Now, could they have overridden his veto? Sure, but at least try, you know, at least try. The hypocrisy is just amazing. Can I ask so, a kind of a, a crazy question that's related somehow? Sure. Uh, even if it's not related, th th that's what I specialize in, obviously, since I, I'm very good at going off topic. So when, when you started talking about outrage and hypocrisy, um, all of a sudden, I could relate to that mm -hmm. because I felt outraged, too. I've been outraged as a Republican. I've been outraged as a libertarian. Um, what else are you feeling right now? I mean, th this is an important way that humans connect with one another, you know, around emotions. And so I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. You know, what other emotions are there that drive you to do what you do, Joe? Because uh, clearly we can run in opposition to lots of things. And as a third party, often we do. But right. there must be something that's like, what's what's really firing that up? What's like beyond the opposition? Well, and, and here's where I need some work on myself. Here is where I am a typical libertarian. Uh, one of the biggest problems libertarians have is we all say what's wrong. We're, we're experts at saying what's wrong and what we shouldn't be doing. What we're not experts at is, okay, so what's the answer? What should we be doing? And especially given the fact that we know from um, research that positive campaigning works better than negative campaigning. And that's one reason why, you know, um, uh, Ronald Reagan had such a great run, you know, the whole morning in America, right? That he was very positive and it makes people feel good. And by the way, it, so you might ask, well, if negative campaigning doesn't work, why do it? Well, sometimes you almost have to do it if you're, you know, if you're a contrast. Way, it, yeah. I'm sorry. You have to make a contrast. Right. Well, and... well, or if your if your opponent is is way ahead. But the thing is, is with you know, re, and and it's not real clear cut. But research shows that um, probably what's going to happen if you negative campaign is they're not going to come vote for you. They're just going to sit home. You know, they're just not going to vote for your opponent. And so, you know, when you ask me what I'm feeling. Yeah, being being the typical libertarian, I'm the one who's really great at pointing out problems and, you know, really great at feeling outrage. And I I am the eternal optimist. Uh, and in fact, I'm way too optimistic. Um, like like I can show you research <laughs> that shows <laughs> how I'm way too optimistic. Um, so I mean, what, what, why? Wait a minute. Why would you say you were too optimistic? So research, and, and I hate to start every sentence with research shows, but that's what happens when you get a PhD, you know, you, you, it, you, it, you don't want to just like start saying stuff and maybe have it just be an opinion, but th this is, hmm. but you don't want to just say, oh, this is fact because science keeps changing. So this is what research shows right now. Um, which, yeah, the, uh, Democrat, the, the people on the left, they need to learn what science is, but Scale of one to 10, optimism. As you become more and more optimistic, 
you become more successful, uh, typically make more money, uh, you know, become happier until you get to around eight. And then it starts to drop off because if you're too optimist, optimistic, you're basically delusional. And like the well-known CEO who had pancreatic cancer, who instead of having surgery was like, I will eat healthy food, you know, and then died. Um, if, if, if you're too optimistic, then let's say your stock market strategy that you're losing, losing money. It's like, oh, but I know it's going to work, you know, or um, you've got a certain business strategy for your company or even just a life strategy. Uh, but, for... Joe, you, but Joe, you're not that far over on the, the spectrum, right? You're not that optimistic. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there at about a 10. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty optimistic. I'm, I, in fact, uh, I, I didn't, come on here to plug a book, but this is actually a pretty good book. Uh, Martin Seligman, who started the whole positive yeah. psychology movement after doing decades of research on um, depression and learned helplessness and things that cause depression. He, and, and after his granddaughter pointed out how grumpy he was, he, he decided to, you know, Hey, maybe we should start looking at the positive side. And, Around the year 2000, something like 99 out of 100 psychology experiments were on something negative, whether it was depression, whether it was lying and cheating, whether it was low self-esteem, you know, 99 out of 100. He said, you know, we need to start looking at the positive side. So he wrote a book called Learned Optimism, which, yes, you are born with a natural predisposition to be either optimistic or pessimistic, but you can change that with work. And he wrote, a, and, you know, the best books really to buy are those that um, they're written by the person doing the research, you know, not some New York Times writer who, you know, reads a few articles and then writes a book, but somebody who's actually in the research knows what they're talking about, but writes a layperson's book, you know, one that you don't have to get out the dictionary right, and follow. Right. Facts. And, and that's exactly what this book is. Well, the book opens up with a, a quiz to see where you are on the scale of optimism. Um, Maybe I did the math wrong, but I think I was literally off the chart. <laughs> like, 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 I don't think the chart went up as high. Uh, it it might have been that I was in the very top of the upper echelon. So the the problem is when you're that high in optimism, you 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 you're delusional. <laughs> like, like you that's not okay. But but you're not you're you wouldn't consider yourself to be delusional, correct? No, not at all. Well, I did run for president in 2020 as a. <laughs> <laughs> way more delusional people than okay. you have won that game all right but did you did you at any point think that you were going to win um no but but i had hopes that i would get into some kind of debate although there was a lot going on behind the scenes that people didn't know about you know yes, there was. The, new, the new committee starting the new debate committee and you know, the campaign, and I, I think I can talk about this out in the open. You, you can you now. It's, it's... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, people e either in our campaign or at headquarters, 
were actually talking with, it's not like they send out some email and it goes nope. in the spam folder, you know, they were actually talking with these people and in the Trump campaign, there were people also in the Trump campaign, right? They were talking and, to us. Right. And, yep. and the people in the Trump campaign were asking them serious questions like, Hey, can you run? Uh, there was actually just, there was a location that had been mapped out. It was going to be yep. in Chicago. Yep. Yep. Chicago. And, and so the first debate went horribly, so bad that they had to cancel the second debate, right? Um, well, they didn't have to, but they decided that. I think there was a COVID uh, incident, wasn't there? Wasn't Didn't we find out that Trump had COVID? At the, he was actually with COVID while he was on stage and got sick immediately after? Yeah, like the, but... Yeah, but I, I think most people attribute the lack of a second debate to the fact that things went so bad, you know, that that the, the first debate where it was just name calling and not getting yeah. anywhere. And so my hope was, well, if the third debate goes as poorly as the first one, then one of the two are going to want to get out there and set the record straight, you know, <laughs> like, hey, you know, they, they just slandered me with this and this and this. So, you know, but, but Trump has just a little bit of that crazy in him that it seemed plausible because yes. basically the way the debate commission rules are set up and people don't understand how many ways the game's rigged. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly at pains to have these uh, Trump people say to me, well, you know, th there were some ballots stolen in Arizona and this happened in Pennsylvania, whatever. And I'm like, cry me a river. You do everything you can to keep uh, a libertarian candidate off the ballot. You do it. You've you've uh, erected an illegal system that has special carve out in law. I mean, it's not you can't go start your own debate commission and do exactly what they did. It's not possible. And well, you know, they bring corporate money in. They say that we yep. can only have these two candidates on stage and those campaigns cannot participate in the event. They sign a statement saying that they will only do those mm -hmm. debates. But he's just crazy enough to go, oh, sue me. You know, we'll go do this. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. Right. Call her outside the lines. And the people that were the conversation was at the highest level of the campaign. I mean, this was a real conversation that they yes. were going to potentially do something uh, in Chicago, just a little yep. more than a week out from the election. Yep. And it didn't materialize. Well, two comments about what you were saying. First of all, about you know, the stolen votes and votes not being counted. I was asked that question often, you know, what do you, do you think it's rigged? Do you think that votes are being lost? And uh, my, my reply was, I don't know, but that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is I wasn't on the debate stage so that people even knew there was another option. That's, you know, it's like, for, forget about 10,000 votes being lost. We've got, you know, over 300 million people in the country who don't even know I'm running. In fact, afterwards, somebody told me kind of a funny story. Uh, a buddy of his had gone to vote gets into the voting booth, you know, sees, you know, votes. And he calls his friend afterwards and says, yeah, I went to vote and there's Trump and Biden. And then somebody called Joe Jorgensen, who's he? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's the real crime is not any possible miscounting of the votes, but the fact that I wasn't put out there by a candidate or, or at, you know, as a viable candidate. And secondly, uh, you know, they, they talk about, and I, I can never remember the name of the debate commission and the new one. It's kind of like, you know, P 
people's front of Judea and Judeans people's front. It's like, you know, debate commission, uh, America, whatever, you know, you scramble some, scramble some words and you've got two different debate commissions. So, uh, but, but it's got the word commission right in the, the name, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know what about the new one, but I, no, yes. The old one, the old one. The old one did. Yes. Yes. So it makes it sound like it's some government entity, you know, like here's a branch of the government overseeing because the the government oversees the election. Right. So, of course, it would make sense that the government oversees the the debate and it's got some official government sounding name like it's all fair and, and all of that. But it's a private entity, as I think you mentioned. And it's half owned by the Republicans and half owned by the Democrats. So they're putting this out as something that's fair, and it's not even close to fair. Not even close. And it's not going to be around for the next uh, election anyway. Uh, Joe, um, go into the future a little bit. What are your, what are your future plans here? Are you, are you running? Are you going to be a candidate for president of the United States? Um. I'm not ruling it out at some point. I had a great time. I'd love to do it again. Right now, I'm working with People for Liberty. I, you know, you never say never. I, I have no plans to run for 2024. Um, or or I wouldn't be doing this for People for Liberty. I, you know, for, first of all, I'm not allowed to do both. And I wouldn't want to start something with People for Liberty and then leave everybody high and dry. But um, I'm not to Nikki Haley's magic age of 75 yet. So um, (laughs) I'll I'll make sure it's before I turn. My post was, you know, forget the cognitive test. We need to give all politicians an economics test. I mean, that's, that's what really counts. Oh yeah. And, and, and those decisions have real impacts on real people. And often the people that it has the most impact on were never counted. You know, this, all this stuff really matters. And I can understand why, uh, Joe, you developed a sense of outrage over time. Uh, I can understand why that would be. I mean, you see these injustices and then you see people not really responding to them mm-hmm. in a heartfelt way. You see them into the degree that it's the heart. You see some heart. It is performance heart. It is like, look at us. We're such good people. We care. But they don't actually do anything to lighten those burdens that at the, in the, at the end of the day, they started. They created Um so oh, I yeah, appreciate- and, and that's where and, and you probably know how Harry Brown phrased it better than I, but he would, but he had that phrase where he would say the government breaks your leg and then they expect you to be grateful when they hand you a crutch or something. Yes. Do you remember him saying that? Oh yes, no, it's his, it's probably his most famous soundbite. Government uh, breaks both your legs, hands you a pair of crutches, and says, See, without us, you wouldn't be able to walk. Uh, yes. And so and that's what they're uh, doing. And you exactly know, like, like like with the student loans. When when I went to school, you could hold a a, a part-time job, a, a you know, a night job whatever, and almost if not totally pay your way through school. You know, it might be a lot of work, but you could do it. Now you can't even do that. After the government got involved with the student loans, which meant lots of money, which, you know, again, supply and demand, you need an economics class, Uh you put in all this money. And of course, the colleges are going to go, great, look at all this money, we can raise our tuition. And then the companies, you know, with all of their, um, 
you know, the textbook prices are just outrageous. It, it's mm -hmm. just the whole thing is outrageous. And it, you know, yes, correlation does not equal causation. Uh, we, we covered a lot of ground here today. We found out a lot about you. So thank you very much. And we didn't even talk about my not eating meat. <laughs> In respect, <laughs> but, uh, but now everybody knows. Everybody knows that too. Yeah. We'll so put that on, we'll put that on the quiz. Day. Thank yeah. you. Have a great day. Thanks for having me.